We're going to continue tonight our little series through the Ordo Salutis, or the Word of Salvation. Tonight, what we're going to do is look at faith, uh, following upon the heels of regeneration and repentance. And tonight, what I want to do, just as a launching place, flip open to Romans 10. Romans 10, and just use that as kind of a launching place to talk about faith in the Ordo. I think what we'll do is back up to... back up to verse 8. I want to read verses 8 through 17. But let's pray before we open the word together this evening. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who is at work in this world. How easily we take that for granted, especially as we sit in this place and stand in this place this evening. You are a God who is active because you are a God of love and exceeding grace. So we pray that even this evening that we would find that you're active in this room and more so that you are active within our persons. That you would bring this living and active word to bear upon Souls that are in desperately in need of it. Some of us, this will be old hat, and pray that it would not fall upon us as, oh, I know that. That we would find ourselves refreshed and renewed and strengthened in this beautiful doctrine of faith. For others of us in this room, nothing of this faith, and we pray that this might even be the night. That you open the eyes of our heart, that we might see you as the living God of heaven and earth. Might come to treasure your beloved Son and our Savior. Work as only you can work this evening. We pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, our great prophet, who speaks to us even now. Amen. Romans chapter 10, I'm going to back up to verse 8, though what I'm really going to do is just kind of briefly look at verses 14 through 17. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. The mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, The Lord who has believed what He has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the Word of Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. That's what I want to think about just here at the very beginning. Last week, we looked at repentance. The week before that, we looked at regeneration. This week, we'll look at faith. Paul, here in chapter 10, is detailing, as he goes from Romans 9 to chapter 10 on to chapter 11, he's detailing how the Jewish people, the Israelites, how they have not believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's detailing how it is his great desire to see his countrymen, those that he is united to by blood, come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood for sinners. And so he is speaking about that here in chapter 10 when we get here. He's detailing how is it that salvation occurs. But you notice he's saying it's not just for Jews, not just for Israelites, it's also for Gentiles. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 14, he gives us a train of his logical thinking in relation to this gospel going out and it being received so that people can be saved. If everyone who calls on Him is saved, then how are they to call on Him is His question. Well, and His answer is, to call upon Him, they must believe in Him. But to believe in Him, they have to hear of Him. And to hear of Him, someone has to preach to them the Word. And for someone to preach the Word to them, someone has to go to them or be sent to them. It's the logical flow of thought. And then he summarizes it all. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. It is God's normative way that He saves sinners by His Word. It is His normative way that He saves sinners by the Word that is preached. Word preach, it's often used in the New Testament. It has the idea of to herald or to proclaim or to announce. It's not a conversation, it's a 
proclamation. This is what is true. This is the one that you need to believe in. Hear ye, hear ye. The king has a word for you. This is what heralds would do. And this is the idea of what the proclamation of the word is. It's a heralding on behalf of the king. But even more particularly, it is the heralding of the king himself. When the preacher who has been called by God and ordained by God and been sent by God as a herald proclaims his word, when he enters the pulpit, he is speaking and he's applying the words of Christ to God's people as the Spirit works and they receive it by faith. Christ is speaking to you. He's speaking in the preached Word. We're hearing a Word from outside of us. And we need to hear that Word. A Word from Christ. He's the Creator. We're the creation. He's the Lord. We are the subjects. He is the head. We are the body. He speaks and we listen. This is not a dialogue. I often think when we're in worship together about this and think it, it's meant to be like Job when he appears before God with all of his complaints and he puts his hands on his mouth. But we're just to sit and have open ears and open spirits and open hearts and just receive what it is that he is saying to us. The entire argument is that salvation comes by the word preached. And as the word is preached, it works faith in the people who receive it. Salvation is by faith alone. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How is it that these Jews are going to be saved? My countrymen, how is it that they will be saved? How will it be that the Gentiles will be saved? It will be that they hear the word. And it's by the preaching of the Word, and as they receive that Word, as that Word falls upon dead, dry souls that are languishing in sin and death and facing the prospect of hell, that as the Word goes out, it is received by these people in faith. First, the necessity of salvation being by faith alone. Necessity of salvation by being, being by faith alone. Why is it that salvation must be by faith alone? Because there is nothing that we are and there is nothing that we can do that impresses God. Nothing. There are men and there are women that are impressive. They're just impressive. Walk into a room and often do this, watch people and think who's going to be the leader as we walk into a room. I like to watch that dynamic. And there are some that just naturally gravitate to the top. They're impressive. A lot of times with men, it's because they're tall. They have a gravity about them and they talk with a deep voice and people just listen to that man. Or it can be that you watch someone and they're just 
they just have a charisma about them. They, when they talk to people, people just gravitate towards them. They're just likable. People listen to them when they talk. There are others that just have it by reputation. They, they are known. They're credentialed. You, you know that they've written this, or they've spoken at this, or they have this reputation. And so when they walk into the room, you can watch people's eyes just kind of drift to that person and see what they're going to say and what they're going to do. It's very easy to impress one another. We do this all the time. And I think a lot of people think that God is much like our interactions with one another, that He is one that can be impressed by our traits and our characteristics and our background and our education and our credentials, that that will commend us to Him as it commends us to others in a room. And God will see us and He just won't be able to help Himself. He'll be impressed and off we will go to spend eternity together. But God said, be holy as I am holy. That's the requirement. Be holy as I am holy. And the distance between our holiness and the holiness standard that is required from us is infinite. And the idea that you and I could in any way approach that holiness standard is laughable. It's so far from us. Philippians 3, I'm going to take you there. Flip over into Philippians 3 with me. Paul was thinking upon this reality as he's thinking about salvation by faith. He's thinking about his pedigree. He's thinking about all the things that he is and that he has done. Look at Philippians 3. Let's look at verse 4. And he says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Look, if anybody has What is required? It's me, says Paul. And we have to agree. There's no one like Paul. That leads him in verse 7 to say this. But whatever gain I had, counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on Faith, 
that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It's all loss, He says. Why? Because it screams of independence. It screams of saying, I have arrived, i got enough. And it lacks an understanding of the depth of our sinfulness. For you and I to adorn ourselves with our pedigrees or our human righteousness or our families of origin or to think that that is somehow acceptable to God. It reminds me of an illustration I heard years ago about a man that read everything he could about swimming. He didn't know how to swim, so he read every book he could about swimming. And so after he had read these books, he went out and he had equipped himself with everything that he had read about. He had on these huge goggles and he put on a swimmer's cap and he put on the flippers on his feet and he put a snorkel in his mouth and he had read how it's helpful to train with diving weights and so he had diving weights on his ankles and on his wrists and he's ready to jump into the pool those things that he thought were going to be assets are going to be liabilities he's going to find himself drowning David goes out to fight Goliath Saul puts all his armor on him. This is what a warrior looks like. But David realizes that what Saul thinks are assets are actually liabilities. They won't help him gain victory. They will lead him to his death. So what does he do? He does the same thing that the Apostle Paul does here. He looks outside of himself. He places his faith in Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. And then Ephesians 2, as promised, spoke about just a couple of weeks ago. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then another beautiful but. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. All are dead in self-righteousness. All. As dead as Paul was on that road to Damascus. A murderer, a zealot, without knowledge, a man who was looking to himself and confidence in his flesh. And God, rich in mercy and rich in grace and rich in love, makes dead sinners alive. How? By Grace, you have been saved through faith. How does faith in Christ make you right before God? That's the second question. How, how does that make you right before God? Faith has often been referred to as the instrument of our justification. The instrument. It's the means by which you and I receive the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Christ alone upheld and upholds the standard of God. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly holy. He 
fully meets all the demands of the law. And God, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, grants and credits it to me. All that righteousness, all that satisfaction, all that holiness, it's credited to my account. Then what's required of me? As the Heidelberg Catechism says, all I need to do is to accept the gift of God with a believing heart. That's what's required. Faith. A believing heart. It's the one thing that's required of us to have a right standing before God because it alone is the instrument by which we receive the credit of Christ's righteousness to our account and God declares us justified. Faith receives. And in this sense, it's passive comes to you. you. You just receive it. It's simply just resting in Christ Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's passive. Just resting in Christ. John Calvin commenting upon this said, you see that our righteousness is not in us, but in Christ. That We possess it only because we are partakers in Christ. Indeed, in Him, we possess all its riches. The Reformers, when they come along in the Protestant Reformation, the Magisterial Reformers and Lutherans, Wingley, the second generation Reformers and Calvin and Melanchthon and and Bucer and others, they will speak about justification by faith being what they would call the material cause. The material cause of the Reformation. That is, it's the very material or the very substance of the Gospel. This is the heart of the Gospel. Justification is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Again, our justification is not based upon merit. The Holy God will never ever be satisfied with the works of fallen men. Neither, though, is our justification based upon the infusion of Christ's righteousness in us. A kind of righteousness that's placed in us and that grows within us. Becoming our righteousness as it grows in us. Rather, our salvation is solely based upon the person of Christ and His righteousness which is imputed to us. It's just credited to us. And that can only be received by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers both believe that justification is by faith. Roman Catholics, you talk to them today, know anything about their theology, will say, yes, we're justified by faith. That's clear teaching of Scripture. The difference is in two ways, is that one, it's that word alone. Justified by faith alone. In addition, there's also been a disagreement about the meaning of justification itself. Is our justification founded upon the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited to us? Or 
is it that the righteousness of Christ that is working in us that justifies us? Reformers rightly understood the Scriptures as Christ's righteousness is imputed to the sinner and that God declares us as righteous by virtue of that gracious act of imputation. It's a real imputation. It's a real crediting. And because it's a real imputation that occurs with a real spirit-wrought union with the righteous Christ, this is not a legal fiction. When you and I stand before the throne of God because we are in union with Christ, His righteousness credited to my account is not a legal fiction. I'm in Him. And so His righteousness is my righteousness. So that when God looks upon me, a sinner, He sees a sinner saved by grace through faith. He sees the righteousness of Christ credited to me. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's not a process. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Christ's righteousness is infused. So that the righteousness of Christ is as it were placed in you. And you as a man or woman who has this righteousness of Christ in you, you then cooperate with that righteousness. And as you cooperate with that righteousness, there is a progressive and inwardly renovating of your heart. And so you are declared, you're not declared righteous, you're actually becoming righteous. And that's your justification. process is said to begin at baptism. Christ's righteousness is infused in you and to progress as you merit your salvation by continuing in this grace through living a moral life and doing good works and participating in the religious rituals. But it's pretty clear in Scripture. Paul says here in Philippians 3, the righteousness from God. He says in Romans 1.17 that it is in the gospel that, quote, righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. John Murray, commenting upon this in his commentary on Romans, says this. He says it is a God righteousness. Because it is such God as its author, it is a righteousness that must elicit the divine approval. It's a righteousness... That meets all the demands of his justice and therefore avails before God. But the particular emphasis rests upon its divine property and is therefore contrasted not only with human unrighteousness, but with human righteousness. Man righteousness, even though perfect and measuring up to all the demands of God's perfection, would never be adequate to the situation created by our sins. And this is the glory of the gospel. You have the very righteousness of God credited to you. It's a gift. This is my standard. Be holy as I am holy. Here it is. Christ. 
just receive it by faith. Another theologian said, the Reformation gave renewed focus to the alien righteousness, that is, a righteousness outside of us, an alien righteousness of Christ. While the monks were busy trying to find the good within, the reformers were pointing believers to the Christ outside of them in history who lived and died and rose again to give freely what none of us has or can create on the inside. You can't do it. No matter how much effort you put in, you can't. So third, let's finally define what saving faith is. It's often been argued in the history of the church that saving faith is three things. Three things. It's knowledge, it's assent, and it's trust. Knowledge, assent, trust. Do this with kids, I always write on the board, say, you know, what is your favorite animal? And we'll talk about it in the night. Say, one of my least favorite is a cat. And I'll put K-A-T up there. Erupt. That's not how you spell cat. True. But that's how you remember this. Knowledge, scent, trust. We must have true knowledge of Christ. We must know Him. Faith has content. Otherwise, it would simply be gibberish. Faith must contain knowledge of who Christ is, what He has accomplished, and what He has promised. Paul is telling us that here in Romans 10, that faith comes from hearing the Word of Christ. There's content. You have to know it. However, there must be more than knowledge of Christ. The second component is assent. This means not only having this knowledge where I know of Christ, I know of His life, I know of His death, I know of His burial, I know of His resurrection, I know of His ascension, I know of His promise of salvation to sinners. When He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I know of that, but it's more than that. I also assent to it. I actually believe that that is true. I believe that Jesus was real. I believe that He truly died. I believe that He truly was buried. I believe that He was truly resurrected. There's a scent to that knowledge. But you see, that's not even enough. James would tell us, even the demons believe and they shudder. They know the information. They not only know the information, they assent to it being true. Right, when Jesus appears there with the demoniac and the Gerasenes, that demoniac will say to him, our time has not yet come. He knows. He knows that Jesus is Lord and King. When He commands Him, He obeys immediately. He knows. He has knowledge and He has assent. But He doesn't have the third thing. Trust. Knowledge, assent, Trust. It's a true leaning on, a true resting on, a true trusting in Christ instead of ourselves for our salvation. This third component is what one theologian said is the crown of faith. You've got to have the crown. 
Faith must look away from self to utter and complete dependence upon Christ, His person and His work of salvation for us. So four quick questions that are often tied to this. The misunderstanding. Isn't faith a work then? I've often been in this conversation with Roman Catholics and Let's say, oh, you, you also believe that it's necessary to do. You, you, have, you have to believe. Where's that coming from? You've got to believe. Isn't that a work? No. Because faith is always a gift. It's a gift that is extended. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not a result of your own doing. It's a gift of God. If any of us have faith, it's because God gave it to us. Second, but doesn't my faith save me? That sounds like I'm saving myself. Well, let's say it this way. In one sense, it is not our faith itself that saves us. I remember reading B.B. Warfield years and years ago and thought, oh, this is the best I've I've ever seen on this. And he said this. He said, it is not strictly speaking even faith in Christ that saves. But Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides, resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith so that we could not more radically misconceive it than by transferring to faith even the smallest fraction of that saving energy which is attributed in the Scriptures solely to Christ Himself. Our faith is but the instrument by which we receive the saving Christ. It's just the instrument. It's Christ that saves. I'm not sure that God has chosen to give me saving faith. How do I know? Listen, faith is not believing you've been saved. Neither is it belief that you are elect. We come to Him as sinners. We don't come to Him because we've been saved, but to be saved. Sinners that run to Him. Finally, my faith seems wobbly. I'm not sure my faith is strong enough to be saved. This wonderful count in Mark 5 where entire chapters about faith. You have Jairus who is having Jesus go with him to heal his daughter. And while they're on their way to, to heal Jairus' daughter, this crowd that is all around Jesus and pressing in on Jesus as he's on his way. And there's a woman that has that issue with blood. She can't stop bleeding. And she's an unclean woman because she's bleeding. But she knows of Jesus and she's heard of Jesus. And 
So she reaches out and she touches Jesus. Because she believes that by touching him, she might be healed. And you have this really interesting passage where Jairus is oh beside himself because they need to rush to get to his daughter and they're on their way and Jesus just stops the entire crowd. He says, who is it that touched me? He, he felt the energy go out. And he stops to instruct about faith. It's interesting that the bleeding woman, she, she doesn't have a perfect faith. In many ways, we could say it was wrapped up with a lot of mysticism. She thought that simply by touching him, she would be healed, presumptuous at the very least. She didn't have her theological T's crossed. She didn't have her theological I's dotted. Her faith was not perfect. But nonetheless, it was faith in Christ. And he commends her faith. He commends her because she trusted in him. An ounce of saving faith is saving faith. None of us, none of us has a pure, unsullied, unstained, pure faith. And there is sufficient grace for such wobbly faith. Jesus himself will even say, right? He will say, we are to come to him with a childlike faith. He sets children as models to us. Have you trusted in the person of Christ? enough. Again, Murray says, it is here that the most characteristic act of faith appears. It is engagement of person to person. The engagement of the sinner as lost to the person of the Savior, able and willing to save. Faith, after all, is not belief of propositions of truth respecting the Savior, however essential an ingredient of faith such belief is. Faith is trust in a person. The person of Christ. The Son of God. And the Savior of the lost. Have you placed your faith person Christ? enough. Now we live a life of faith to Him. All other things that we think could merit us heaven or open the gate or gain God's favor or make us pleasing are nothing. Everything else we trust in is a loss. It's rubbish. It's dung, as Paul says. Christ alone is our, is our gain. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a great gift of the age. Hope you know it tonight. If you do, ha, ah, 
should go home skipping. If you don't, I would love to talk with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great gift that you have given us in Christ. Thankful that none of us in this room have reason to boast, and none of us have reason to despair. That if we have faith, it is a gift from your hand, and may we live a life of continual faith before you thanksgiving and joy in our hearts. If we don't yet know your Son, pray even tonight that you would flood our hearts with the truth of your Word, that we would know this righteousness of yours credited to our account, that you would extend your hands out and give the gift of faith. us never to despair, to think we are too far gone. You are a God who saves sinners. For that, we are thankful. We want to give you praise and glory with all that we are. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.